0: Hey everybody, this is Connor, your podcast producer. Welcome back to the Yellowbird Bird Connect Podcast. This week a very special guest. As always, Pat is in the studio, and this time he is chatting with Kevin Bupp. Kevin is a very successful real estate investor with over 20 years of experience, and he is the host of the Real Estate Investing for Cash Flow podcast. They got a lot to share with you guys. They're gonna get a lot of great information. Hope you guys enjoy the conversation and you have yourselves a great week.
1: The main reason we started Connect is to give everyone the opportunity to do what I did. We wanted to, be to offer the real estate community, especially locally, something new, something that was fresh. And
0: if we can help a couple people change
1: their lives through this education. Just one person or two people come up to me saying, man, that was awesome. Like what you put on it was great. Then it'd
0: be a huge win for everyone. If you've gotten any value at all from this Yellowbird podcast... Make sure to like, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes. What's up, everybody? This is the Yellowbird Connect podcast. We are excited today to have with us Kevin Bupp. We are going to be talking about um, investing, just getting started in investing. We're going to focus on mobile home parks for a little bit, and we're also going to talk about Mindset, just entrepreneurial Mindset, and growing from uh, building something from nothing to uh, you know something worthwhile. Um, Kevin, welcome Pat. Thanks for having me very much. Looking forward to this. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for taking the time to do this. We've been trying to coordinate it for a while and we're glad (laughs) to have you here. Yep. Um, so I want to get started just with your background. I think, um, whenever I listen to podcasts and I know the, uh, the uh, feedback we've gotten from this podcast is people want context on where you came from. So just give me Mm -hmm. a little bit on your background. Um, and you know the, the quick story on what got you to where you're at now,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I've basically been a full time investor my entire life, I'm 40 now. Um, got introduced to real estate at the age of 19 in a very indirect way. Um, I wasn't searching for it, it kind of came and found me, and um, <clears throat> that was through a girl I was dating. Her mom was dating some guy by the name of David. David was a real estate investor, and uh, uh, I became friends with David, learned what he did, he introduced me to the business, and uh, long story short, I started buying um, you know, single-family properties like a lot of people do. Um, this, I followed him around, and he was my mentor for about a year and a half. I kind of just helped him out wherever I could in his business. Uh, you know, Aside from tending bar in the evenings and going to school, um, I worked with him. I was at his home office, out in the field, what have you, and did that for close to a year and a half. <clears throat> Before I actually went out and actually bought my own property and so I was 20 years old I bought my first single family investment did that for for many years Um, ultimately scaled a pretty large uh, single family portfolio of rental properties um, as well as uh, hundreds of apartment doors uh, as well as some other miscellaneous commercial real estate and then uh, pretty much lost it all in 2008. Um, you know, took a couple year hiatus, about three and a half year hiatus, started a few other businesses, non-related to real estate. Cause I didn't want to think anything about real estate. It was a complete disaster on my side mm-hmm. and, um, dove back in, uh, uh, to, to, to real estate or at least had that fire burning and, and, and really started to uh, identify, you know, where that fire was going to lead me, you know, late 2011 and, and ultimately by accident again, that's kind of how my life goes. I was introduced to a guy by the name of Randy, Randy owned mobile home parks here in Florida, I had no interest in what Randy was doing, but I had lunch with him <laughs> anyway and left that two hour lunch with a newfound passion and and uh, focus of mobile home parks. And I really wanted to buy one. Again, this is back in 11. Um, I wanted to buy one and either you kind of prove or disprove all the great things that Randy had to say about mobile home parks. And that's what I did. It took me a little over a year to buy one. Um, I bought it in 2012 and, um, loved everything about it, bought another one, bought another one. And the long story short, we own communities now in 13 different States, um, we're based here in Florida, but we own uh, properties up in the Northeast, out in the Midwest, um, kind of all over the place. So um, that so that's a very condensed version of uh, of, of, the, of the last, I guess, 20 years per se. No, that of, was of what really good. Doing. That was really good.
0: <laughs> I want to I want to dig into the beginning of it first. Yeah, because uh, I read your bio too. Um, you know, you talk about always having that mindset, you, you want to call it what you what you will, the, the buzzword for it now is like the entrepreneurial mindset, but I see mm-hmm. it in kids now it's, it's being able to know how to make money, right? right? You went out, you had a paper out, okay, I'm into this, let's do more of it. How can I scale this? You know, you, you had the business in your parents' garage. How can I scale putting, you know, right. uh, audio systems, like just that mindset, uh, you see a lot of those type of people in this space. Um, so can you talk about the transition from like doing those, doing those first money making things to why did you end up, uh, getting into real estate? Was it just, I, I know you mentioned, you mentioned your, uh, you know, that guy Dave at the time, mm-hmm. but how did you end up being like, this is, this is the answer here in real estate yeah. and not something else?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a great question. You know, I, I, um, I came from, I mean, I came from a very, very solid household. Both my my parents are still married, you know, but very much blue collar, you know, we never went without. So I'm not going to act as though I came from like rags to riches or anything like that. I mean, we always had food on the table. You know, typically we on like one family vacation a year, you know, just had a normal middle class life. However, didn't, you know, didn't have a lot of extra money to spend. You know, Christmas was pretty much on a budget every year again, but we had gifts, you know. So again, this isn't like, hey, we had, we got literally Cheerios on a plate for Christmas morning, you know, <laughs> like it's, we had, you know, we had everything we needed and it's all relative, right? However, you know, my, probably my early, like, you know, I was like nine, 10 years old. I really got into like BMX bikes. And, uh, um, I was really into like BMX racing and I had a bike, you know, and it wasn't all that cool. It wasn't an expensive bike. And, and I, I just remember that being like the first time I'm like, I wish I could make my own money. You know what I mean? And, uh, neighbor one of the neighborhood kids that actually had the, the paper out that I, that I ultimately ended up getting, uh, I had to be 12 to get it. He was about to go off to, uh, to college. And I'm like, I'm getting that paper out. I, cause I I know he rode a really cool bike. And he had things, and I knew that he made like $50 a week. And I'm like, God, that is a lot of money, you know, like $200 a month at that age. I'm like, holy crap, I could buy whatever I want. (laughs) Um, And so, like, it really just came from a a point of I know my parents don't have it. I'm not even going to, like, ask them. I'm not going to be a little pesky kid saying, oh, please give me this. You know, because I know they didn't have it. They worked hard, but they gave me what they had, but, you know, no, no additional and so that's really that i think that fire came from like i wanted things and i didn't want to rely on anyone else to get them for me and i wanted to get them myself and and so i just got creative you know i you know shoveled snow um did everything i could you know mowed grass did chores around the house for money did neighborhood, neighborhood chores for money um really got into the stereos at a young age i had an older brother he's like six years older than me and uh back then it was really cool i have a really loud stereo system and he was driving you know he had a lot of friends over all the time and and my dad was in electronics. He had a background in electronics. And so I always watched my dad tinker around in like the workshop and, you know, put together things and uh, take them apart. And, and I just, I, I just would hang out with him and watch what he was doing. And he kind of taught me the basics of like installing like an amplifier in a car. I mean, this is when I was like, you know, 11, 12 years old. <laughs> and. Uh, how to do something like he was a pretty good carpenter, so he, like, he built like custom speaker boxes. He taught me how to do that. He had all the tools, so I just used like his workshop. And anyway, I learned how to make money doing that. As I had this paper out, I was you know literally installing car stereos and and uh, my brother's friend's cars out of my parents' garage, and that turned into something at, which was worthwhile at that age. And anyway, I mean, long story short, you know, leading up to to like high school and 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 you know, really real estate. I you know I, I never did great in high school. I just didn't have an interest. I, now I love learning, but then I just, I didn't understand the reasons behind certain classes I was taking. I just, I didn't have a passion. And um, I look back and I wish I would have done it differently um, because I didn't give it, I didn't give any effort whatsoever to school. <laughs> and so I graduated high school and I was like, you know, I know I want something bigger in life. I don't know what the heck that is. All my friends went away to school and I'm like, I just don't want to do that. Like I, I I barely made it through like high school I surely don't want to go waste my parents' money. I knew I'll just go party away. I kind of knew I was self-aware enough that I would have just burned up their cash if I'd have gone off to university. And so I just went to local community college, started taking business classes. Um, again, not much direction, you know, tending bar, making good money, doing my thing, and uh I just, you know, I, I I met David, through again, through a girl I was dating, and I saw this you know, lifestyle that he had. He was about 25 years older than I, so I mean, very big age difference, but he had done quite well. He was a local investor, lived a pretty cool lifestyle, dressed really nice, had nice cars, seemed to always have time, you know, like literally just seemed he didn't work the nine to five, the normal right. thing that I was used to growing up. And um anyway, Dave and I became pretty good friends just for me hanging around the house and uh he invited me to this real estate conference. And I I look back now and kind of reflect as to and I've never straight asked him this question as to why'd you why'd you invite me? But now I look back, I'm like, he must have seen like a somewhat lost kid, you know, teenage, you know, like 19-year-old that didn't, you know, that maybe had a lot of skills, but hadn't really applied them yet, like in life. And you know, he obviously saw something bigger than what I did. And um, he invited me to this real estate conference and and, uh, and, and I was, I, I didn't even have to think about it. I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm going to here. Uh, I'd never read a real estate book. And I went because I was like, you know what, if, if this is how David got his start. And this was one of the foundational uh, components of what he's been able to build then I want to be there. And I don't know what that even means yet, but I want to be there. And, uh, and until I actually got really deep into the, um, you know, the, 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 trenches of, of going to the conferences, working with David, um, watching what his day-to-day opera, operations look like. I didn't know if real estate was a good fit for me. I knew it made money, right? I knew I could make money doing it. And I knew I could, you know, better myself at that point in my life. I was like, I, I could, I could at least build a, a, uh, you know, a, a career out of this. I could do something. I just didn't know if I had a passion for it, but within that like first year, man, I like, I realized it really quickly. I was like, number one, I know I can make great money doing this. Number two, like, this is fun. This is fun. This this is the art of communication, you know, communicating with buyers and sellers and agents and contractors, negotiation, you know, like that that, that was just so much fun to me. Again, I was tending bars. I was always an outgoing person and right. always loved interacting with people. And this was a way for me to do it and make money while I was doing, you know, something I really enjoyed. And so, um, and I just grabbed the hold of it, man. So, I mean, long story short, I realized I had a passion to grab the hold of it and uh, just ran full speed as fast as I possibly could until 2008. And then uh, yeah. basically ran <laughs> ran against the brick wall pretty hard, but
0: <laughs> you had a good couple
1: of years run up before that. You mentioned a lot of stuff there that I just want to
0: r- reiterate. Um, the first being uh, David, your mentor. I, I talked to a lot of new wholesalers, you know, every day I'm getting lunch with them mm-hmm. and what I, my best advice for someone is go out and Pick the person who you want to be, the person in your market that's doing a bunch of flips, the person in your market that owns 200 rentals that you want. Find that person and try to add value to that. You know, don't be annoying, but add value to them. You know, uh, um, try to see where you can fit in, uh, you know, to their operation and just try to be around them as much as you can. And that's what it sounds like you did. I tell everyone, just go out and work for the best person in your market for free. Uh, mm-hmm. Go out and say, you know, if if it's if it's someone wants to be like you, they come out and say, Kevin, how can I add value to you in this market? I know for me, it's like you can add value by going out, driving for dollars and just sending me leads. And if someone yeah. does that every day, I mean, there's it's not rocket science, as you know, um, the deals will start to flow in and, you know, you'll get over that rejection part and things will start to happen for you. Mm-hmm. That's what I say to everyone is go out, find a mentor and, and, uh, you know, just, just work for him for free, which were, were you working for him for free? Did you guys even yeah. have a stri-
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, he didn't hand it to me on a silver platter. Like the whole idea of him invite me to this conference is because his business partner couldn't go. He'd already paid for it. He couldn't go. And so like him and I were you know becoming friends and he's like, Hey, would you want to come join me? You know, in Philadelphia for three days. And, you know, so I was like, absolutely. But then I went there, I was, I was overwhelmed. I was excited, you know, and I, I knew that there were, the people in the room weren't much smarter than I was. I mean, their IQ wasn't higher, but they knew something I didn't know. And, um, and I left there with an excitement, but I knew it would fizzle out pretty quickly. And so, and I I didn't want to go out of the loan. I mean, I was, this was like this, a real first entrepreneurial journey, like the car stereo thing. I still lived in my parents' house, you know, paper out still with my parents, you know, so a little <laughs> bit different, right? You know what I mean? Like this is like truly stepping out into the world of the unknown. And so I went to him he was a one man show. I mean, he was a small operation. So, um, obviously there was like, he kind of handled everything in his business admin stuff and he'd be out running, picking up contracts this that and the other, just things that probably weren't the best use of his time. And so I essentially went to him, thanked him for the, you know, the, the conference, thanked him for just being a friend and just let him know my excitement, um, towards his business. But that I just, I had this like mental roadblock of like, where to, where to take this energy and how to place it efficiently into this business. And I, and I said to him I think there's probably things in your business that I could help you with. Again, we had an age gap there. He was like 20, I forget the exact age of about 25 years. And so there were certain things I was really good at. Like, for example, like just like technology, there were certain things that I was much better at than he was, uh, or things that I could do better than him and also that weren't the best use of his time and so I just said how can I help you with your business how can I take some load off your plate you know how can I you know help you grow the business I didn't know the answers but I figured he would tell me or at least be able to identify you know where those voids were in his company and you know where I could help maybe you know fill the gaps and that's exactly what happened and it really what it came down to is me working for free and I didn't think of it as work I thought I was like man this guy's is- He's giving me free. I'm doing this other little dumb shit, you know, that he's asking me to do, and I'm I'm getting a ton of information in exchange for something that's taken him many years to build. Um, and so I'd tend bar like three or four days, three or four evenings a week. I'd go to school a couple of days a week, and then any time in between there. I mean, I'd I'd wake up early, I'd stay up whatever needed. I would be I would be working with him. I'd be at his office or out in the field with him. Um, my friends thought I was crazy. They're like, why are you hanging out with this old guy all the time? <laughs> You know, yeah. they're like, why aren't you staying around the bar and drinking? You know, I'm like, no, I got to get up at like, it's like two o'clock and close on the bar. I got to get up at like 6am, you know? And they're like, you're an idiot. What are you doing? You know? <laughs> and so, uh,
0: another thing yeah. you mentioned that I wanted to, uh, bring up again, which I haven't articulated this before, so I'm not sure how it's going to come off, but you mentioned your, uh, you, you got caught up in the passion of deal-making, communicating with people, putting deals mm-hmm. together and you can make money while you do it. I think it's a kind of a trendy thing in society now to be like, follow your passion, do whatever you want to do. Right. Not that that's a bad thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it's like, what, what do you want to, what would you do for free every day? And okay, that's the job you should have. Everyone that's a millennial go and follow your passion. Um, I've thought a lot about this just personally over the past five or so years since I've been involved in real estate full time. And, uh, you know, I, I thought about it a lot. I've always been big into, like, fitness. And you mentioned in your bio, too, like, snowboarding. Mm-hmm. I've always been huge into snowboarding. It's like, ah, should I really be doing, busting my ass in Jacksonville every day, or should I move back north and just be a snowboard instructor and make maple syrup all winter? You know, it, I, these <laughs> ideas, like, cross my mind. And recently, I came to the conclusion that I, I do enjoy doing those things, but my passion, really, is... Not that it's real estate, but it's deal-making. It's making money. It's building a rental portfolio. It's building something big and making money doing it. It's mm-hmm. it, it, And not every day is going to be an amazing, uh, awesome day where the sun is shining and deals are just flowing in and everything's awesome. No matter whether you're doing your passion or doing something that, that sucks, you're going to have good and bad days. So I, I just wanted to add that in there that, y- you know, People that are looking for their passion, you kind of take a step back and really look at everything that's going on and really look what makes you happy. Because with me, you know, of course, there's other things I'd rather be doing, but I just love doing a deal and and making money and growing, you know, growing what we're doing here.
1: Well, I think you also want to make sure that you don't confuse a passion and a hobby, right? You know, cause like, you know, snowboarding for me is a hobby. And I think if I tried to build a business around it, I'd probably start losing interest in the actual hobby itself because now I got to actually work at it to, you know, to make it exactly. into something. Right. Whereas like, that's a, that's a, a, for me, it's a point of like stress release, like get up on the mountain and just have some solitude. And the same thing goes with like cycling. I love like riding my bike, man. I love getting on and riding it for hours or even sometimes day long rides and, uh, and, uh, if I turn that into an actual business where I had to like do it with other people and like cater to them and it's like, well, this isn't fun right. anymore. You know, I lose my interest in my hobby. And so my hobby is like my escape. And, uh, and, and so I, I just want to make sure people understand like a passion and a hobby are sometimes two very different things. Can you speak to, can you speak to what your passion is now, what
0: you're directed at now and kind of mm-hmm. how it's changed from when you first started, whatever,
1: what were you doing when you first started? Were you wholesaling? Were you guys flipping? Were you buying and holding? That's a great question. So David was all about buying and holding and building a rental por- portfolio. However, what I failed to realize is that he was at a much different point in his business where he had a lot of capital, like already set aside, and so he could he had the luxury of buying and holding pretty much everything that that he would uh, come across. Um, and so that was my intent because I wasn't reinventing the wheel. And so the first deal I bought, I bought with the intent of holding. And surely thereafter, within like six months, I realized that I'm I'm out of capital. Like. I, <laughs> I can't buy another property, you know, and you know, or I I could, but it'd be a lot easier if I had like some working money or working capital to do it with. And so I sold that one. Then what I what it ended up turning into is I would, you know, flip three properties, more so wholesale. I wouldn't I wouldn't fix and flip. I've had I have done some fix and flip, but not not to the extent of calling it a big part of my business. I hated that part of the business, and so most of the time I would either wholesale or I would rehab, but more of a rental you know grade rehab, not not like retail sale sales right. grade rehab. And uh, so I'd flip three, wholesale three and uh, and keep one. like that that's ultimately what the strategy ended up becoming until I had enough uh, you know a couple things changed. Number one, I had a lot more working capital as I kept doing deals. and number two, when I really started ramping the business up, I started really, uh, building a, a fairly large network of private lenders um, th- that could become my capital source. So it just wasn't all my money that I was working with. And so that, that was a game changer as well. And that really allowed me to leverage other people's money to do more deals and not have to rely just on the money, the operating capital, that was in my very own bank account. So that was a big game changer allowed me to scale, um, you know, within a, a few short years, about two and a half years into the business.
0: Got it. So, wait. so it really, it,
1: it really, it really transitioned more to like buy, and then have rentals, and so a lot of times we'd buy like, just give an example, we'd buy seven to ten uh, properties with private private lenders' money, you know, renovate them, get renters in them, and then we'd go get a commercial loan, take out those seven, you know, to ten. 10 private uh, notes on those properties, consolidate them, you know, cross collateralize into one loan and then get all their money back and go do it again. Go buy seven to 10 more properties, do it again. Seven to 10 more, do it again. That's kind of our, that was our game with the single family space back in the day. And so it was all about keeping them as a long-term rental portfolio.
0: So when, uh, it's really interesting because that's very similar business model to what we have doing now. We keep about half of what, of what we do Mm -hmm. each month. Um, what was, obviously downturn was a, a, a rough time for everyone. How many houses did you own? Uh, 100, 122. When the, okay. And the yeah, first, the did it, crashed. Did it? was it like a domino effect? I mean, I always like getting into like, how did it happen? Like you, one person missed rent. Obviously the values went down, but the houses were still rented. Is it like one person misses rent and then another person? And then it kind the of, no, dominoes... different.
1: a little different than that. And I think every market was a little different, how it got affected, you know, One thing that we had going on here in Florida, especially in Southwest Florida back then, was we had an oversupply of new housing. Like speculative homes were being built like forever and ever, you know, as far (laughs) as the eye could see. And uh, especially down where we owned things, which was, um, you know, Tampa and South down to like Sarasota and Fort Myers area. There's a lot of excess land down in that region. And uh, there still is today, even. But a lot of speculative homes were being built. And so what really started happening is number one, we started seeing the uh, kind of the warning signs. Of the market, just the general correction of like pricing and, you know, the uh, activity of sales volume and things like that. And um, what started happening is with that sales volume changing, a lot of these new homes that these spec builders, the thousands of these homes were just sitting around, they weren't selling. And so, at least in some of the markets we were in, these spec builders started renting these brand new homes out. Um, A lot of times for, areas that weren't growing anymore. Like in fact, people were actually exiting out of these areas because there was no jobs left. I mean the, the, the real estate, it, it really drove the economy here in Florida back in that time. And so what, what was happening is that we started having people as far as, you know, instead of doing a release with us that they were living in like a 30 year old home, they could go rent a brand new home for either equal or not much more than what they were paying for our, you know, 30 or 40 year old home. And that, that happened in a uh, fairly uh, large scale over a period of like eight to 12 months. And like we were basically fighting for the same people because there weren't more people moving into this area, but we we had an excess supply of homes. And so it just got to the point to where um, we'd have to offer a lot of concessions. We'd have to lower the rental rates. I mean, like, you know, it was just ugly. And it got to the point where we couldn't make our are, are no payments. I mean, we literally were fighting for the same tenant base, but yet they had a choice of a brand new home because a lot of these, these builders were trying to cover their nut as well. Right. They yeah. had construction loans. They had to, they had to pay. And, um, in any event that that's ultimately that, that that's what the downfall was. And so we started watching this kind of play out. And so we started like, Hey, let's, let's just sell our inventory. Let's sell what we got. I don't know another option. Let's sell it. And we had a lot of equity when this first started playing out. we, our our loan to value across the board, like our leverage point was somewhere in like 66% range on average, some high, some lower, but like a lot of room there. Really good. And that went really quick. I mean, meaning like from like us having that much room to us being negative on like 80% of our, of our portfolio literally happened in a matter of like a year, year and a half. I mean, and so like, we started like, okay, let's sell them for 80%. Let's sell them for 75%. Like we were like chasing the market, trying to sell and no one was buying. No one was buying. No one was buying. Even trying to find like fire sale things, people weren't buying. People were scared by that point. You know, people were like, ah, I don't know how far it's going to go down, you know. And so uh, we were just like chasing this this downfall and this domino um, spiraling out of control. And anyway, it just got to the point to where instead of having incoming cash flow, we were writing checks every month, big checks to make up the um, the negative debt service. Um, And we knew that debt was not sustainable. Didn't know another option. A lot of the banks weren't working with us at that point in time. I mean, it was so new to all the banks. No banks had loss mitigation departments back then. Like that was a fabrication of the, of the recession. Like those departments now exist because of 2007, 2008, 2009. And, um, a lot of the banks that we were working or a lot of the banks that we had loans with, they didn't want to hear it. They weren't, they weren't, uh, they weren't feeling the pain enough themselves yet to really have an interest in working with us and doing loan modifications. And so um, very few of the banks even like would consider, you know, restructuring the loan. And so it got to the point where we literally had to make a strategic decision to, um, to default. Like we literally had no other option. Um, we, I was we were going to be completely out of holding capital and, um, and uh, our properties weren't cash flowing and uh, the banks would not work with us. And there was no other debt available to, to, to bring into the equation. And that plus we're still so- chasing this, this downward, you know, trend. I mean, we didn't know when the bomb was going to happen. So right. it was uh, lots of different things that kind of came into effect or into play that ultimately created uh, kind of the perfect storm, I guess you could yeah. say. Yeah. Thank so. you so
0: much for taking the time and really articulating that well. People, You hear people say all the time, oh, we got our faces ripped off in 08-09. You just really broke that down very understandably of exactly how that can happen. Um, I really appreciate that. That was that was really good. Uh, can you talk? I mean, since going through that, I, I want to talk about kind of your mindset coming out of it too. But because mm-hmm. obviously you're you're back on top. But um, going through that, looking at the market now, are you seeing any similarities? If you are, why do you think they're a sign that we we are seeing something similar? And why do you think you know why are, why are they? signs that we're heading possibly that way again? And why are there signs that we're not?
1: You know, I don't see any, I don't see necessarily the same exact signs. I mean, I, w- I will say that, you know, and, and my business is very different today than what it was back then, as far as the type of type of properties we were buying. I mean, we did own apartment complexes, but that wasn't a big core part of our business. It was kind of a, it's kind of funny because it was a, now I look back, it was probably the most stable part of our business, but it, we ended up buying stuff just by happenstance like we never had like a plan behind it we were just investing our money in apartment deals and we were focusing on this machine we already had built which was the single family stuff um but uh you know i i can co- kind of compare it to you know i i see a lot of um a lot of capital raises happening you know more so in like the multifamily space um and uh, and I, and I review a lot of different PPMs out there just to kind of get a sense of what different groups are doing, you know what their offerings look like, what their performers look like, you know, how they're underwriting it. You know, if I can find some techniques or strategies that they're utilizing we might not be utilizing just just to get get an understanding of what everyone else is doing out there. And uh, you know, the thing I see is is a lot of folks really stretching as to, you know, what those rent projections are going to look like. Rents have been going up steadily for like the last 10 years, you know, and there's a certain point in time to where things become unaffordable or not just that, but, you know, if your performer projections has, you know, rent increases at, let's say it's 3%, um, which is, you know, based on CPI, which should be pretty conservative for the next 10 years, you know, not, not, not seeing the other uh, and not running a different variables in there as far as, you know, what happens if two years go by where there's no rent increases? What happens if uh, um, if you've got marked at year five, you're going to do a cash out refinance and you intend to pay 60 percent of your investor capital back to them? What if when you go to refinance, um, you can do a refinance, but no cash out? Because that happened. You know, if you wanted to do a refinance in 2009 and you want to get a lot of equity out of your property, good luck. You know, it just, the the banks would have probably lent you money, but they wouldn't have let you take a ton of capital out as well, which would add additional risk for them, you know? So running those stress tests on properties and a lot of the experienced sponsors and operators do that, you know, and a lot of the inexperienced folks don't, or they, they just don't know. All they know is that things have been continually going up, And, uh, that's a trajectory and that's where they should continue to go. However, that is, just not always the case. So again, I I don't know if I I really didn't directly answer your question. Um, but I see a lot of people stretching to make deals work. I think a lot of the same things happened in, uh, 2007, 2008. Everyone felt like if I don't buy if I don't buy something today, like this anxiety existed back then, I remember it. If I don't buy something today, there's not going to be anything left that I can afford tomorrow you know, like the prices are going to continue to go up and I'm already priced down. So I'm just going to stretch to buy it. And then I've got something and I can hold on to, it and it's going to keep going up in value, what have you. And same, I think is, it was being applied to rents today. Uh, because we're, you know, the economy is, it's been on an uptick, man. Like the, you know, the longest ever, um, uptick in, 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 in history. And, uh, um, Things can change, you know, I mean, there's there's things that can occur in this world. I mean, if another, not that I would ever wish this upon any, any country or any individual, but what would happen, if, I don't know the answer to this, but what would happen if another like 9-11 event occurred, you know, like another catastrophic event here in the United States, what would that do to the capital markets? What would that do to, um, you know, to the buyer's trust in the marketplace and things of that nature? I don't know the answer, but we haven't had many things like that occur. We haven't had any kind of hiccups here along the way. And I think you just got to be very conservative, you know, right. bottom line is be incredibly conservative. in your underwriting assume the worst is going to happen underwrite based on that and, uh, and ensure that the deal still works and you can pay yourself, pay your investors and, um, that, that it can handle stress along the way.
0: So and another thing I wanted to get into too, is, uh, you mentioned there's a lot of capital calling right now, people trying to go out and raise money for multifamily deals. Um, I, I see a ton of that, and I know me personally, I can't scroll through Facebook without seeing people trying to teach that, like multifamily syndication. Mm-hmm. Um, it, has that had an effect you being in the in the syndication game? Has mm-hmm. that had an effect on the industry at all? All the kind of guru education for creating people to go out and find these multifamily deals? Does it affect the industry at all and all wow. the offers being made?
1: I, I don't think so. I mean, that, that's that's always been around now with Has social it? media. It's just more prominent, you know what I mean? Just back in the day when I got started, it wasn't social media. Like, it was, you know, whatever, like home study courses or, you know, CDs <laughs> or, you know, cassette tapes. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and it, 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 I remember, like, I can only speak to, like, leading up to, like, you know, through 2005, six, seven, eight, the uptick of, like, boot camps and and training courses that were – that were being presented or even going to like the local real estate club meetings you know every week there was someone pitching a training program or a workshop and, and it seemed like that got a lot more of a concentrated effort towards you know the kind of the end of the run the bull run there and um and I think that leading up to 2008 it was really hard to lose money in real estate like you know again when the trajectory is only pointing up it, it can it can hide a lot of the mistakes that you make, right? It can hide a lot of the weaknesses. And the same thing is going on right now. A lot you, you don't have to be a phenomenal real estate investor to make money at this point in time. You just don't. I mean, like the market's making it for you. You can make a lot of mistakes. It can cover up your mistakes. You can move on. And you can act as though that, hey, I know this better everyone else. I can teach it because I just did five deals that made money. Right. Fantastic. And that's why you're seeing a lot of that out there. And I'm not saying that every everything, I mean, because we have an educational program. So I'm not going to talk bad about those that teach. I just think that you've got to, you know, if you're out there looking for someone to give you guidance, you're looking to buy into a program, just ensure that you understand an individual's track record, you know, what, what, you know, what have they done? How long they've been in the business. I'm not saying just because they got started three years ago, that they're not the right person to coach you. That's just not the case, but really dig deep into the, the, the history, but not even be not just with real estate, but what they do before real estate, right? Like really get the full broad picture of who they are as an individual, what other, you know, skill sets they brought to the table from other businesses or other experiences in their life. And um, just, you know, feel comfortable that they're the right fit for you because there's a lot of it out there, man. There's a lot of people out there pitching programs and uh, and even, you know, limited partner opportunities and deals to invest in deals and things like that. So, and I look at a lot of it. I, we've got a lot of money invested you know, passively in a lot of different operators. I vet these guys all the time. And uh, there's some really great ones. And there's also some that I'm not going to say they're bad, but there's ones that I wouldn't put money with, you know, just right. maybe they'll turn out just fine and they'll, and they'll do well. But I, there's just there's some kind of uh, red lights that pop up or red flags that um, you know, make me hesitate.
0: That's a really, really good advice and vetting a program if you are going to do it, because some of them some of them are really good. And, and really, the stuff you learn during them is undervalued for for what they're charging for and then there's others that are way overpriced and they're just you know their main goal is to uh to create a business rather than actually teach Mm -hmm. (laughs) teach their students so that's that's great advice on vetting i want to talk just a little bit more about uh your operation now with the mobile home parks because Mm -hmm. i feel like uh, uh mobile home parks are oh there's a lot of attention right now on multifamily and multifamily syndication. And I feel like mobile home parks are almost like a hidden little gem that not a lot of people are focused on. Um, what, what are you doing with them? I know you're buying, but are you also doing a course where you're
1: teaching people how to buy? Yeah. So I'll answer the first question. The first statement you made is that they're kind of like a hidden gem. They used to be hidden. Now everyone knows about them. And it's probably because we, <laughs> you know, we're one of the reasons probably behind it. We we have a whole podcast on it. We've been talking about it for a long time. So shame on us, I guess, for letting the secret out. Um, but yeah, so like, it's definitely, it's, it's in it, like, there's lots of institutional investors now in our space, lots of private equity firms, lots of big time investors pouring a lot of money into the niche. And so it's definitely tightened up a lot over the last two years, two years uh, as far as, you've seen yeah, that? a lot. Of, yeah. Like, Last year we bought nine parks, um, and this year we uh, we've only bought one. wound up buying two total, um, and we've killed a lot of deals this year because the prices are gotten they've gotten so aggressive, and um, yeah, you know, just we're very conservative. So like we we, we need to know that we're, it's going to be not it doesn't need to be a home run every time, but you know these things they're not super easy to operate. I mean they're not passive investments like some people might make you think. Um, they take a good bit of work, and so if we're going to buy into something, we don't want to you'll be struggling to get single digit returns, you know, if we're going to buy it. and a lot of these larger institutional players, their cost of capital is a lot cheaper and their right. um, you know, the returns that they need to hit are much different than that of our own. So uh, with that being said, uh, <clears throat> you asked me about the, 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 coaching side of it. We do have a, uh, a program that we put together and it's, you know, it was, it was something that we documented in our business practices about four years ago. This was a couple years into the business, but we sat down and really documented what it was we did on a day to day from, you know uh finding opportunities negotiating with sellers you know uh, contracts all the way to the operational side and even raising capital and we just documented it for our own internal purposes originally and decided that like there was a lot of people asking for the same thing so we literally just we literally share now or we sell you know our business in a box is kind of what I call it. that's not what it's you know called technically but um it's it's called the um uh the mobile home park academy so mm-hmm. it's um it's something that we don't talk about a lot, you know. I, I'm not. I'm not first and foremost a. I don't ever want to say guru because I hate that word. That's horrible. <laughs> um, I give a lot of free information out. I love helping people. Um, I'll answer any questions anyone ever has about mobile home parks. If someone comes to me and, and asks me, you know, if if we offer coaching or or, or or like some type of education, only then will they will they find out where they can go get it. And so you got to kind of dig to find our program that we offer. And it's only because I don't just want anyone in it. I want people that are serious and are going to pay the money, but also put the time in and, and follow through with it.
0: Right. That's important. I mean, uh, with, with the mobile home parks, you mentioned that the prices are going up. You bought nine last year, only, Mm only two this year. Is that because that, uh, the sellers of those mom and pop, mobile home parks they are they getting hammered with marketing from institutional people as well as yeah. the, the the even smaller guys too? Is that why they're going yeah.
1: up? That's part of it. I mean, yeah, I mean, they're, they're um, they're, bec- you know, they're becoming a lot more educated about what their property is, is worth in the eyes of uh, the different types of buyers that are out there is the best way to right. put it. Um, you know, up until the the recent years, I mean, there were some bigger investors out there, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't the type of competition that, that's out there right now with, um, some of this institutional capital, you know, some guys that have cost of capital, that's in like the 2% range. It's really hard for us to compete against guys that have uh, capital that they're getting for, you know, two to 3%. It's just, it's um right. it's a different world. And so a lot of educated sellers. I mean, we've sold a couple of our parks. We're not really sellers, but um, we've taken advantage of it on our side. And some of the things that are a little smaller or maybe not markets where we look to, you know, we're looking to expand and, you know, grow our portfolio in, um we've unloaded some of these properties and it's absolutely crazy what they've uh, what they've traded for. Um I have a hard time making the numbers work myself but again <laughs> it's
0: really really interesting know. watching you talk about, or hearing you talk about mobile home parks like that with the big institutional guys and in what you guys are doing. I feel like it's the same as what we're doing in single family here in Jacksonville. You have us who we need to make money off the flips and rentals we buy and then you have open door who yeah, doesn't yeah. doesn't necessarily need to make money off the off the flips they're buying. So the numbers they're paying, mean, we are flipping stuff to them and the numbers they're paying. We have really? no idea how they're making it. Yeah, we've sold we've sold a few to Open Door. Um, the same as with some of the uh, other institutional buyers. Um, these hedge funds that come in and are paying really good numbers. Uh, th- we're, we're not competition for them. I mean, we can't even pay. We can't pay. If someone, call if a, someone, a lead calls me and they're saying they're putting their info into open door too, it's like, I'm not, I'm not going to try to compete with that because it, it, what yeah. I tell them is we actually have to make money off the houses we buy open doors out there for market share right now. They're trying to change the game, give people yeah. good numbers for houses. Um, it's just a completely different business model. So it's, it's funny. And then you mentioned that you're taking advantage of these of these buyers too and you're you're making
1: I'm sure great profits on the back end selling to them. Yeah, no absolutely. It's just you gotta be able to buy more though. That's that's a challenge, <laughs> right? At a fair price. So you know, that, that's that's interesting that you guys are uh I, I never thought of that as, as a potential strategy with like an open door offer pad. So you guys have actually sold properties to them. Now they won't they won't buy like heavy duty like fixer uppers though, will they? I mean they
0: no, their, their, their box is, I think it's 1960 and newer, and if it's in real rough shape, they, don't, they can't buy it's gotta it. It's got to be and, pretty
1: much livable of some sorts, right?
0: Right, but that gives us, I mean, that allows us to stay in the game, right? Because we'll buy those all day. When open door backs yeah. out of them, then it gives us an opportunity. But I met uh, at the IMN conference last year, or two years ago now, I met a guy Uh, who his whole business model was based on buying stuff off auction.com, zone, county auction and selling it to open door. That's his whole business. Really? So kind of like light bulbed in my head, like, God, why are we not using, you know, open door and stuff too, to as a, as an exit strategy. Yeah. So uh, of course, open door ebbs and flows. Sometimes they're competitive offers and sometimes they say back off and they're a little lower, but it's funny.
1: We actually, so my wife and I just got done building the house and uh, we had our other house and like, it was, we slowly moved over and it got to the point where I was like, I'm sick of going back to this other house. I mean, and, uh, and we had a ton of equity in and I'm like, you know, mm-hmm. what, let's just let's for, for, for shits and giggles. Let's put <laughs> it, let's go the offer pad and, um, uh, open door. Let's, we submitted to both just to see. Yeah. And, uh, I forget, I always mix up which one we sold it to, but I mean, their <laughs> offer literally came in within, um, we, we, we probably left about $15,000 on the table. And, you know, maybe 20, but that would have been us waiting around with a buyer, mess, yeah. you know, just uh, like it literally had it it, it was done within like three weeks from beginning to end. Um, we didn't even clean the place when we were done. You know, I mean, let them. I mean, it was in good condition, but we didn't clean. We didn't go through and clean it. It needed right. like a fresh coat of paint and, you know, need some like sprucing up. But um, so maybe we left 20 grand on the table at the end of the day. I'm like, that was well worth not having to deal with Absolutely. The, the wedding around or, you know, messing with listing it or anything like that. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, they're paying great numbers. I, I honestly tell people, I was like, if you're looking at Open Door, that's a great option for you. They're paying phenomenal numbers. Yeah. And there's some realtors that are upset about it. They'll look at, they'll pull the tax website and say what they bought it and sold it for. But it's like, those are small margins. I mean, they're giving people good deals, in my opinion. Yeah. So, I think Zillow's getting into the game as well, right? In Jacksonville, they'll be here in 2020. Wow. Um, so they're already buying other parts. So. Oh, I heard, I heard new-
1: something about, um, about, uh, Gary Keller, like with Keller Williams that they're actually thinking about starting their own yep. buying service now too. I've also
0: heard that. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see where that goes. Uh, because it is, I mean, I, I think in my, it's my opinion that they're buying a little too thin right now that they won't, they're not really you know making much money. I think they're probably losing a lot, but at some point they'll get that margin right. And their process and their website is so smooth to, to the, the way, yeah. the way that, that it can make that transaction go that I think they'll get it right. So Aren't they
1: just our really buying it for like, like they have a guaranteed 7%, you know, commission, I mean, whatever they call it a transaction fee would have you. But I mean, I mean, they're, they're basically just buying the right to have a guaranteed listing is, is what is kind of how I view their business model. Is that not the case? I mean, like the, 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 sure. like the spread, yeah, the spread is just a little bit of a buffer for the time that they got to put in to getting the home, you know, ready to market and maybe some holding period as it sits on the market. But I mean, I think we paid a, um, it was like a 7%. So they paid us a little less than what the value was. Right. Um, and then we paid like a 7%, I don't, I forget what they call it, a transaction fee or something like that. And how I view that is like, look, they just bought a little bit of buffer in there as far as like what they paid versus market value. And essentially, I don't know what their other, the other side of their platform looks like, but they put it back in the market with a realtor. So even if they right. make half of that, you know what I mean? So they just basically bought themselves a guaranteed listing with a little bit of buffer there for holding period and, and holding costs associated with that property if it didn't sell right, right. away. Yeah. Uh, I, kind of. A, I mean, if you got – again, I, their model is much more sophisticated than that, I'm sure, but that's kind of how I viewed it. And I'm like, that's pretty brilliant if you think about it. If, you, if you, The best realtors are the ones that can absolutely crush it getting – listings right that's all you got to do all you got to do is get a damn listing pull on the mls there's no skill set whatsoever in the rest of the being a realtor it damn thing on the get the listing pull on the mls let someone else sell it take half and that's it (laughs) not to discount realtors out there that's not (laughs) not the point i'm being made whatsoever but that's really the game if you want to be the top realtor in your market that's what you need to learn how to do and do it better than anyone else is to get listings Uh, one last thing I've really enjoyed talking to you, Kevin, one last thing I wanted to ask you is, uh,
0: all your, you know, success in business and being down in the downturn and climbing, climbing all the way back up to where you are takes a lot of mental, mental fortitude. And it takes almost being uh, borderline workaholic type, very driven, high A type person. Uh, but you also have a family. You've also have hobbies. Uh, can you talk about kind of happiness, what's important to you and how
1: you keep it all balanced together. Yeah. I could speak to what I'm, what, what, what my happiness is. I, as far as balance, I don't think anyone, anyone that tells you they're balanced, they're not balanced. I'm not balanced. <laughs> I know I struggle I'm every day. I struggle every day, just like everyone else does, um, to keep it balanced right now. My workload is so intense, but, um, and I, I don't think that, this, that never seems to change no matter what we do and how much we delegate out, how many people we hire just, you know, just keeps continuing on. But, um, As far as like what's important to me and what happiness is, I I absolutely love my family to death, my wife and my two boys. I love spending time with them. In fact, I love taking them to school in the morning. So like I I, unfortunately, you know, uh, um, I I think it's a good thing. Some people might view it as a bad thing. Like here in our county, um, they don't start uh, uh, elementary school until uh, 845. It's crazy. Uh, And so like. I live, my office is about thirty minutes away from my house, so but I drop the boys off a lot of mornings at school, and I pick them up a lot of times in the evening from school. My wife and I kind of share back and forth, but I like doing that. I enjoy like sharing that time with them, dropping them off, you know, shoving them off, having a good day, and then picking them up and kind of learning about the day they had. That's a lot of fun to me, and and, and uh, the weekends as well. I try a lot. So a lot of times I travel, but um, when I'm home, I'm home, and it's like you know spending time with the, my wife and the boys you know, going out in the water. We love boating. We love fishing, just, you know, being out in the ocean, um, love traveling. We go, you know, a lot of trips together. And so I, I fit that in no matter what, even if it means some things get sacrificed at work. I mean, it's just cause you can't, you can't get those memories back, you know, right. of all the regrets I've heard from the folks that are older than I, that are in business. That is the biggest one. It's like, I didn't Kids. spend enough time with my boys. I didn't spend enough time with my wife and I'm on my second wife because I didn't spend enough time with my first wife, you know, <laughs> Right. My kids don't really know me or like I wasn't around until they were in their teenage years. It's like, screw that mess. It's just not worth it, man. Um, so anyway, that that's incredibly you know, important to me. And that's happiness. As far as like structure of the day to day, I kind of live by my calendar um, like that. That is the only way that I I can keep you know general structure um, uh, in my life and, and get things done, like things that are absolutely important. Um, they get put on the calendar and then I just literally like a, like a, you know, pretty much like a robot all day or machine just follow the calendar. Like what's next, what's next, what's next. Um, and I know they try to plan the night before as to you know, like what's important, what's priority the next day. And if that calendar is not completely full, you know, fill in a couple little things in there that I just want to peck off the list, you know, like make sure that it's, you know, really items that are going to push the business forward. But again, make sure they get on the calendar because if they don't get on the calendar, they just don't ever get done. So. Right.
0: I appreciate that, Kevin, and thanks again for uh, scheduling us in this time period. We went for a while, and I really appreciate it. a lot of great, a <laughs> yeah, lot of nuts. great insights, a lot of great mindset stuff. So, thank you so much for your
1: time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Pat. This has been a lot of fun, man. And thank you for everything you're doing for all the listeners that are out there, and just how much you're helping them and, and give them value in their business. And um, you know, mo- most people. I get, you know, back when I started, there was no podcast. And, uh, so for, for people like you and I, and the, the many other thousands that, that take their time, I know this is, takes a lot of time for you, right? This takes you away from your business to give value back to, you know, the, the thousands of listeners that you have. So just thank you for doing that. Cause a lot of us wouldn't be where we're at if it weren't, weren't for folks like you seriously. So thank I, you. I, I'm the
0: same. way. I mean, that's how I learned a lot of my stuff too. So I appreciate yeah. you saying that. So yeah. thanks a lot.